Joshua 1, verses 10 through 18. Then Joshua commanded the officers of the people, saying, Pass through the camp and command the people, saying, Prepare provisions for yourselves, for within three days you will cross over this Jordan to go in to possess the land which the Lord your God is giving you to possess. And to the Reubenites, the Gadites, and half the tribe of Manasseh, Joshua spoke, saying, Remember the word which Moses, the servant of the Lord, commanded you, saying, The Lord your God is giving you rest and is giving you this land. Your wives, your little ones, and your livestock shall remain in the land which Moses gave you on this side of the Jordan, but you shall pass over before your brethren armed, all your mighty men of valor, and help them until the Lord has given your brethren rest as he gave you. And they also have taken possession of the land which the Lord your God is giving them. Then you shall return to the land of your possession and enjoy it, which Moses, the Lord's servant, gave you on this side of the Jordan toward the sunrise. So they answered Joshua, saying, All that you command us we will do, and wherever you send us we will go, just as we heeded Moses in all things, so we will heed you. Only the Lord your God be with you as he was with Moses. Whoever rebels against your command and does not heed your words and all that you command him shall be put to death. Only be strong and of good courage. Amen. Father, we thank you for your word. And it is our desire uh, to dig into it, uh, to appropriate it, to live by faith as a result of what we have heard. And so I pray that you would anoint my lips, keep me from error, enable me to faithfully preach uh, that which you have laid upon my heart. And I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. This is the uh, second week in these verses. Uh, last week, we looked at the main lessons that we're dealing with what a, uh, a really ideal biblical military would look like. And hopefully the principles we looked at last week uh, will serve as a good protection for some of the young uh, men and uh, women should a draft come up in the future. And by the way, what I warned about last week, this past week actually happened because the Senate um, pa- uh, uh, brought out from the committee, six to two, I think was the vote, uh, for the Senate to uh, vote on the National Defense Authorization Bill. And they sneaked in the same language they put in last year, uh, which would force women uh, into selective service. Uh, and again, it's a felony if they do not do so. And so what we looked at last week, very, very relevant to what we're going through uh, today. But today we're going to do something a little different. Since there are 93 New Testament verses that uh, clearly uh, apply the book of Joshua to typology and to other things, uh, we're going to go through the verses again and we're going to pick up some additional lessons that we can learn. And the first thing that I see is that Joshua obeyed God instantly and without question. And if you take a look at verse 10, it says, Then Joshua commanded the officers of the people. It doesn't say he waited for weeks as he wrestled with the difficulty of God's commands in the previous section. No, as soon as God gave his commands, then Joshua obeyed without any question. He had instant obedience. And we should desire the same attitude in ourselves when God speaks in his word. Rather than wrestling with it, just say, yes, Lord, I submit myself before you unreservedly. And if God expects instant obedience in us, it's probably something we ought to be training in our children at a very uh, young age. 
And uh, uh, it's, a, it's a small lesson, but I think it's an important lesson that we should not uh, overlook. Uh, we ought not to be slow to obey the Lord. And how do we train our children in this? Well, I would say train your children that the moment you give a command without nagging and nagging and nagging, you just expect right off the bat, no, there's consequences if you don't have instant uh, obedience. And if you're having trouble with that concept, uh, I would encourage you to uh, get Edzo's, Gary Edzo's course on uh, training for first-time obedience. Uh, or if you're one that likes the Cliff Notes version, I've put uh, the three points into your outline from Vody Bauckham, uh where he says that uh, the first-time obedience involves uh, telling your children that they must do what they're told, they must do it when they're told, and they must do it with respectful attitudes. And Joshua definitely had that with God. Okay, another secondary lesson uh, from this passage can be gained from verse 11. It says, Pass through the camp and command the people, saying, Prepare provisions for yourselves, for within three days you will cross over this Jordan to go in to possess the land which the Lord your God is giving you to possess. Now, why would God command them to prepare provisions when he's promised to give them the land? And the answer should be obvious to all of us. It's because God uses means to accomplish his uh, purposes. Uh, There's prayer, there's planning, there's actions that need to be uh, taken on our behalf. And really this this, uh, idea, I think, is something we know intellectually, but we don't always implement. Uh, when it comes to preparing for emergencies, some people say, uh, I'll just trust the Lord uh, to provide if and when such an emergency arises. That's really not trust. That's presumption. Uh, and um, I think it would be as silly as taking God's promise that he would provide food for us as an excuse why we, we don't need to lift the fork and put the food into our mouth, right? <laughs> no, God uses means. He enables us to do things but doesn't do them for us. And while God did enable them to gain additional provisions through spoil and various cities that they would conquer, uh, the first city, he did not allow for that. Uh, Jericho was completely doomed to destruction. There was nothing that they could pillage from uh, that city. In fact, they marched around that city for seven days, and yet they didn't go hungry because they obeyed this command to prepare provisions for themselves. And what was said for soldiers here is said for everyone else in many other passages. I'm only going to read you three. Proverbs 27:12 says, The prudent foresee danger and take refuge, but the simple keep going and suffer for it. And then Proverbs 6, 6 through 11, it's another passage dealing with preparation. And in- interestingly, it doesn't say we should prepare only if there are anticipated emergencies. So this should be a way of life. Um, it uses the ant as an example. Whether there are emergencies or not, it doesn't matter. It says, go to the ant, you sluggard, consider her ways and be wise. And how are we to imitate the ant? Well, without any goading, that ant stores up supplies for itself, and the implication is we should as well. Let me read that. Go to the ant, you sluggard, consider her ways and be wise, which having no captain, overseer, or ruler provides her supplies in the summer and gathers her food in the harvest. How long will you slumber, O sluggard? When will you arise from your sleep? A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands, 
to sleep, so shall your poverty come on you like a prowler and your need like an armed man. And I'll just give you one more example. It's Matthew 25, 1 through 13, where Jesus draws the contrast between five um, wise and five foolish virgins. And I'll just describe it to you rather than reading it. So in this scenario, five wise virgins make preparations for the coming of the bridegroom. And not knowing when the bridegroom would come, they bring along extra oil just in case he is delayed. And it's a good thing they bring the extra oil because he was indeed delayed. And uh, so they had enough uh, oil with them. And the, the five foolish virgins, and by the way, Jesus praises them for bringing more than what they anticipated they would need. Um, anyway, the five foolish virgins decided not to have extra oil. They just brought what would be enough. And when the bridegroom came much later than anticipated, the foolish virgins, who didn't bring enough oil, they begged the wise virgins, hey, could you give some of your extra oil? And the wise virgins say, well, actually anymore, it's not going to be extra. We're going to need all of this oil. But once you go quickly to the marketplace and exchange some of your uh, other assets for oil, and then you can come back. So they go off to the marketplace, they do that, but it's too late because the bridegroom comes, the doors are locked, and they miss out on the feast. So that's the parable. And um, that parable would make no sense unless the concept of preparedness continued to be valid. And let me make six applications from that parable. First, and I think most obviously, it's wise to prepare for future contingencies, and it's very foolish uh, to think no contingencies will happen. Uh, it, it was normal in generations past to always be preparing for contingencies on many levels. Previous generations did not, well, they didn't have big screen TVs, but they didn't buy big screen TVs on, on debt. They were debt averse because that's presuming upon the future. It's not anticipating uh, contingencies. It's living hand to mouth, uh, assuming your wages will be always the same. Or another example, it was normal to store up a supply of food for the winter because you can't have a harvest uh, in the winter. And um, everybody did this. They would can food out in Ethiopia where we grew up. We had to can food because we lived off the land. But they learned that from their parents who learned it from the previous generation. And this idea of storing up a year's worth of food was just normal. Uh, it, it was storing up kerosene and other essentials as well. Second, even the, though the exact timing of storages might be unknown, uh, shortages of storage, I should say, might be unknown, uh, there are certain steps we can take to be at least somewhat prepared even for unknown contingencies. Third, I find it very interesting that the wise virgins are not rebuked for not sharing with the foolish virgins what they had uh, stored up. Uh, Jesus was saying that you should not have the attitude, hey, I'll just live off of the wise virgins who are storing up right now. Uh, he says, no, that's not a wise thing to do. And then fourth, since it was wise virgins who told the foolish ones, why don't you you know, sell some of your other assets and get the essentials that you need. Since it was wise virgins who did that, we should assume that their advice was wise as well. Uh, if you don't have adequate supplies for the next year, 
reallocate your other assets to make sure that you have essentials. Just to make it concrete, don't buy a big screen TV if you don't have the essentials of food. You probably shouldn't buy a big screen TV anyway, but uh, um, you get the point. Um, Fifth, doing the right thing, verse 10, when it's too late, verse 11, can be disastrous. And so that parable is basically saying, don't procrastinate. You know, when a tornado sweeps through a town or there's a hurricane when you're down south, uh, there's really not time uh, at that point to get the preparations that you need. You go to the store and everybody else has already wiped it out. Everybody's scavenging uh, for the food. And then last, there is a balance between not wanting to be a burden upon others. That's why we're storing up. But also wanting to be self-sufficient to the degree where we can help other people out. So these wise virgins, they're in a place where they can help out the bridegroom and all of his attendants. Uh, They don't need to, to worry about that. Well, Galatians 6 gives that same balance. Galatians 6 verse 5 says, let each one bear his own load, but it also says bear one another's burdens, Galatians 6 2. So I think we need to strive to do both. We need to do everything we can to bear our own burdens, but do so so effectively that we'll be in a position that we can help others out too who are in need if they've tried to be responsible. Uh, Now we recognize not everybody will have the ability to do everything, but those who have plenty are going to much more joyfully share with those who are poor if they know these people have tried to be responsible. They just didn't have the resources. They've tried to implement Galatians 6, uh, verse 5. And this is the whole point of uh, Chuck Bentley's book. What's the name of it, Joel? The Salt Plan. Thank you. Uh, Chuck Bentley's book is a great book that says we're not storing up so that we can hunker down and just survive. We're storing up so that we will be not scrambling last minute during an emergency, but we'll be in a position where we can help out. We can serve uh, the body as a whole. And as covenanted believers, we are called to bear one another's burdens at all times, but we are also called to encourage each other to bear their own burdens. And that's what this part of the sermon is encouraging you to do. Bear your own burdens first, and then there's going to be a bearing of one another's burdens together. And by the way, shortages might be a lot closer than we have in the past uh, suspected. Uh, There are, on the electric grid, for example, there are electric grid operators on the East Coast, West Coast, and even some in the Midwest who are saying that later this summer there may be uh, rolling brownouts and even rolling blackouts um, because of lack of, uh, of electricity. And so, you know, you could have food, food spoil, you know, in your refrigerators. Freezers can probably last two or three days. But the point is, it might not ever happen. We might not have it, but when you see the possibility of contingencies, we need to plan. And uh, other kinds of shortages might be a lot closer as well. It used to be thought, you know, food shortages are a crazy idea. And now even the establishment, the Biden establishment, is worrying about global uh, food shortages. And um, while the Russia-Ukraine conflict is probably not going to impact us. They're, they're one of the world's biggest uh, wheat suppliers. 
we provide our own wheat. That's probably not going to impact us that much. But there are seven other reasons that experts this year have begun predicting we're going to start having price increases of food and maybe even shortages later on this year. And one of the ones that's really frustrating the Biden administration is that China is hoarding, has been hoarding uh, the food reserves, the global food reserves like crazy, and other countries are, are getting frustrated by this. Right as of last week, I checked, and China's food reserves are sufficient to feed their entire population for two years without touching anything else, just the reserves, and yet they continue to hoard. Nobody knows why. Uh, are they planning to go to war? Who knows why they're, they're doing that? Uh, but anyway, it's affecting the world supply. And then add to that the supply chain crisis that's been developing in the USA and the price of gas and diesel and possibility of diesel shortages later this year. And then, this is weird, beyond weird, the 96 unexplained fires and destruction of uh, food processing plants. I actually talked with uh, somebody this past week, I haven't verified it, but they said just this past week it went up over 100 of these, just in the past 12 months. This is unheard of. And then you got the bird flu. You got other things that at least give the potential that we could have food uh, shortages in the, in, in the future. And as I said, even the Biden administration is a little bit um, nervous about that. So for those of you who don't store up for the future food, just keep in mind, we are the first generation that has had the ability to go to the store at any time and get, get food. Almost every other generation has canned food, has stored up in some way. And let's say it doesn't happen. If you do this and you're using the stuff that you store up, you just roll through it, it's going to be no skin off your nose whatsoever. It doesn't matter whether a crisis happens or doesn't happen. It really should be a way of life if you follow your grandparents' um, um, uh, um, ways of doing uh, life. And for those of you who don't have the money to prepare, I would ask, are you really living within your means? Are you eating out? Are you buying new furniture? Are there things that aren't absolute essentials? You've got to have the first essentials first. And there are always ways that you can cut expenses. And if you can't prepare in every area, at least prepare on the basics of food, first aid kit, that doesn't cost very much, three month supplies of your own essential medicines that you can roll through using uh, the older stuff first and rolling back, a kerosene heater, some other uh, form of non-electrical heat and at least minimal security. Now that's not weird stuff. This is stuff people have done every generation in the past. It is not strange. Now obviously the preparations that these soldiers were doing here was probably only for a few weeks of um, travel and uh, warfare, but the principle is the same. They were able to get those stores, and they did not get those from Walmart. Uh, they got them from their family stores, and you could be sure they left plenty for their wives and their children to eat as well. Okay, third secondary lesson that I want to share is actually based on the New Testament's repeated use of Joshua as a type of the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, the name Joshua and Jesus are exactly the same in the Greek. You can look in Hebrews, Joshua and Jesus, exactly the same. In fact, the King James translates Joshua as Jesus because it is the same word in the Greek. And the New Testament uses the book of Joshua as a symbol of Jesus conquering the world with the gospel. 
Uh, Beale and Carson's massive book on the New Testament use of the Old Testament shows 93 explicit references to Joshua in the New Testament. And you examine those references, you see it's not just Joshua as a man that is a type, but it's also Joshua's actions and the actions of the people in the land of Canaan and the resistance of the people from the land of Canaan and the good things that were in the land of Canaan. This book is just rich in typology. And so let me make some applications to the Great Commission and to New Testament living. <clears throat> First of all, Joshua reminds the people three times in these nine verses that the land of Canaan was a gift of God. It's God's gracious gift. It's designated that in verse 11 where Joshua says, Go in to possess the land which the Lord your God is giving you to possess. So God is giving it, and then he repeats that two more times. And here's the point. Unless God blesses our efforts, our labors are in vain. Okay, We depend upon the Lord not just in salvation, but for everything that we do. We are to walk in the Spirit in every area of life. Okay, So dependence upon God, it's His good gift. But then the next sub-point is that the land could not be gained without human responsibility and effort. So yes, God gives the land, but then He calls them to possess the land that he has given to them. And this balance between divine sovereignty and human responsibility is seen in thousands of passages in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. My favorite one that I use all the time, I probably ought to get a few other favorites so people don't get tired of them, but uh, Philippians 2, 12 through 13, indicates that we can only work out what God has already worked in us. In other words, God's grace enables us to be responsible, but responsible we must be. And so applied to the Great Commission, which is what this is a, a type of, all authority has been given to Jesus in heaven and on earth, and on the basis of that power and that authority, he tells his disciples, go therefore and make disciples of all nations. Okay, we can't wait for him to convert the world any more than the Jews under Joshua could wait for God to conquer the land. No, they were required to go in, into the land, possess the land, conquer the land of Canaan. And we must get active in evangelism and discipleship as well. So there is a balance between divine sovereignty and human responsibility, even on this area of typology. Now, I want to dig a little bit deeper into the specifics. What is it that God gave to them. And I've summarized it under two words, rest and land. Let's look at each one. Verse 13 says that God was going to eventually give Israel rest. Now, some people apply that rest to heaven. Uh, other people say, no, it's a symbol of salvation. Uh, but I agree with those scholars who say, no, it's very, very clear in Hebrews that this is a type of the the progress of the Great Commission uh, that Jesus takes. Um, uh, uh, and, and it's really the, the rest is the final outcome of that Great Commission. It's a godly civilization in the world. And um, uh, the, the success uh, as nations are indeed obeying all things that Christ has spoken. So Hebrews 3 through 4, 5 speaks of Jesus taking the conquest of the land, not with a physical sword, but with a sword of the Word, with the Bible. And we have a far vaster rest awaiting us 
than they had. They had a rest eventually in the land of Canaan. We're going to have a rest, peace, godly civilization, righteousness, as a result of the Great Commission being fulfilled. So yes, the meek inherit the earth, but do they do it by being passive? Absolutely no. Uh, Hebrews 4.11 says, Let us therefore be diligent to enter that rest, lest anyone fall according to the same example of disobedience. He's not talking about, you know, being diligent to enter salvation. That would be a works righteousness salvation. That's a misapplication. He's talking about the conquest of Canaan. So he's talking about diligence and advancing the Great Commission by God's grace. But the bottom line is that there is a rest coming from heaven to earth as heaven invades the earth more and more, as God's will is done on earth more and more as it is in heaven. That's what we pray for in the Lord's Prayer. It will eventually become a world in which righteousness dwells and the rest being enjoyed in heaven right now. I mean, you enter your rest the moment you get to heaven, but the rest being enjoyed in heaven right now is eventually going to be enjoyed on earth forever and ever throughout eternity. Now, that concept of rest is a glorious promise. It means that the Great Commission will be fulfilled eventually. The Great Commission will not be a failure. And that means that all nations will become Christian nations. We're not just discipling individuals. We're discipling nations in the Great Commission. And they, those nations, will observe all things that Christ has commanded. So I believe we will have a Christian world eventually. Hebrews promises it'll be a far more glorious rest than the rest that the Israelites enjoyed in the land because he says all enemies in this world must be put under the feet of King Jesus and eventually turned into friends. Now that brings up to us to the promises of the actual land or earth. And a lot of people try to explain that away. I don't think you can. Verse 13 says, The Lord your God is giving you rest and is giving you this land. So he's promising two different things. Rest and land. Are we promised land in the New Testament? Yes, we are. Matthew 5. The meek shall inherit the earth. Uh, Romans 4 verse 13 says that the promise given to Abraham really was that Abraham uh, would inherit the world. World, cosmos is the word that's used. So the good news of the gospel is that God's grace goes far as the curse is found, as the hymn Joy to the World words it. Um, It will eventually reverse thorns and thistles and death in the new heavens and the new earth, But the conquest that leads to that is right now, okay? The psalm quoted by Jesus said that the meek shall inherit the earth. It says it actually several times in Psalm 37. But it begins with this, trust in the Lord and do good, dwell in the land and feed on his faithfulness, delight yourself also in the Lord, and he shall give you the desires of your heart. And then it goes on to say that when we do that, here are some of the things that God's going to bring in history to this world. He says he will bring shalom. Well, you read that shalom and you realize it's the reversal of everything negatively impacted by the curse, by the fall. He's going to bring God's embrace. I love that one. For those who uh, uh, feel, you know, the orphan spirit, God's embracing you to himself. And then it goes on and it says full satisfaction and guidance and security and eternal life and societal wholeness and judgment of the wicked 
and justice and inheriting the earth and dwelling in the land forever and abundance of shalom in the earth. It's just an incredible psalm. And so Paul is not exaggerating at all when he says in Romans 4 that the promise to Abraham was that he would inherit the cosmos. It wasn't just Canaan. That was a down payment. He's going to inherit it all. And let me tell you something. Hebrew says he had not yet at that point inherited it, which means Abraham is going to have to be resurrected in the future in order to inherit it. You know, full preterists say, oh, it's just heaven. But no, there's more than heaven that Abraham's going to inherit. He's going to inherit the land, the earth. As Randy Alcorn points out in his fabulous book on heaven, it's my absolute favorite book on heaven, uh, he says we were made to enjoy this physical universe, to explore this physical universe, to take dominion of this physical universe throughout eternity, And he said, if that's true, we need to begin engaging in that right now. In other words, God is not rescuing us from the physical. No, he's going to redeem this physical world as well, and he uses us to take dominion of it. We're going to inherit the physical, and God is preparing us for that with every scientific and ecological and agricultural and chemical and other enterprise right now. We should glory in God's creation. Okay, we should take dominion of God's creation right now if that's going to be our inheritance in the new heavens and new earth. We've got a generous God, and earth, yes, the tangible terra firma, is one of his glorious, wonderful gifts. But Hebrews 3 through 5 says that we could easily miss out on what God intends us to enjoy in this world, just like the first generation of Israelites missed out under Moses. Hebrews 3 basically says if we operate in our fleshly strength, like the Jews did in Joshua 7 when they tried to take over Ai and they got beat really bad, it says when we operate in our own fleshly strength, we're not going to succeed. And then it says if we're unfaithful like the first generation of Israelites were, we will not succeed. And then Hebrews 4 says if we draw back from our calling, then we will not enter into our rest. And then Hebrews 4, 12 through 13 says, yes, our sword is far more powerful than the physical sword that Joshua had, but if we don't use it, we will not succeed. Hebrews um, 4, verses 12 through 13. For the word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of soul and spirit and of joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. And there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are naked and open to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. So he is saying that this Bible is far more powerful than any earthly sword that is out there. It has the power to turn nations upside down, just like the, great, uh, the first great awakening turned England and America upside down. But what we need to do is we need to do like they did at the first great awakening and start bringing God's powerful word into politics, into business, into every area of life, sort of like the Benham brothers are doing. And they're doing it without apology. They're doing it fearlessly. And if we would do that as a whole church, we would see astounding changes once again in this world. Why? Because the word of God is powerful, incredibly powerful. Instead, what's happened is the church has sadly picked up the carnal weapons of this world. We play politics the way the world plays politics. 
He says, why aren't you picking up the weapons of God which are mighty, mighty in God for tearing down strongholds? Those are the weapons we need to be using. So Joshua and Judges will illustrate that conquest is not guaranteed, a guaranteed conclusion in any generation. God requires us to trust and obey. So verse 11, back to our text, says that they had to cross over the Jordan, penetrate the land before they would see their rest. And in the same way, Christians must penetrate every aspect of culture and take it back for King Jesus. Or at a very minimum, we need to set up a parallel economy and a parallel culture that is so beautiful that it will eventually replace the humanistic one when it uh, collapses. Okay, let's move on to secondary lesson number four. Now, we touched on this, on the subject of the regulative uh, principle of government last week. That doctrine is such an important doctrine. What it does is it limits the power of the state. Praise God. I mean, this is the foundation for our liberty. And uh, the Puritans, I think, were one of the most consistent generations of applying that Uh, to uh, the state, but they pointed out it doesn't just limit the state, it limits the church. The regulative principle of government applies to, to both. And in a nutshell, here's what the regulative principle of government is. Families and individuals retain all to themselves, they retain all rights, all privileges, all ministries, all powers, that are not explicitly given in the Bible to the state or to the church. Wow. Well, if we did that, we'd have a very limited state, and uh, the footprint of the church would be much smaller than the footprint of many churches really are, and it would liberate and open up and cause people to realize, wow, we can't just wait for George to do it in the church. Uh, this is ministry is all about what God is doing through us, and I think this is a doctrine that desperately needs to be resurrected. Okay, another lesson is that the age for war that we looked at last week is also the age for treating guys and gals as adults in other areas of life as well. Uh, it should be the age that we really celebrate. Now, it was not all fun when you got uh, age 20 because Exodus 38:26 says that's when you start getting taxed. Taxes aren't great, right? (laughs) No, their taxes were pretty great compared to our taxes. They were very, very small. But it was the age that you had to go to war. Numbers chapter 1. So it wasn't all fun and exhilaration. There were a lot of responsibilities that were put on 20-year-olds. But it basically is the age of adulthood. And if you look in Leviticus 27, you will see that it's the age of adulthood for both males and for females. Uh, In Numbers 14... Uh, God says that he did not judge anyone of the previous generation who was under the age of 20. And if you look at our um, covenant, uh, DCC covenant uh, document, you'll see a whole bunch of scriptures that show this is the age at which males and females are supposed to renew the vows that their parents had taken on their behalf when they were younger. It's passing on, taking it's covenant succession, taking uh, the responsibilities of the covenant to the next generation. So there's many, many scriptures that talk about age 20 as being hugely significant. So on the basis of that, let me suggest something, and you can take it or leave it. You know, you can be Bereans and see if you think this is okay or not. But I would suggest that you make a far, far bigger deal over the 
20th birthday for your kids than you do over the 13th birthday. A Talmudic Judaism made a coming of age, uh, age 13 for boys, and um, age 12 or 13 for the girls, you know, the, the bar mitzvah and everything. You won't find that in the Bible. People uh, appeal to, uh, you know, Jesus coming to the temple. That's the only reference they can look at, and there's a totally different explanation for that. So, yeah, you can have fun doing a bar mitzvah if you want, but really, the biblical age of celebration, you need to be congratulating Teddy and other people who come to the age of, of 20 because this is a huge deal. This is far more important than a bar mitzvah in my view. Okay, anyway, I'll, I'll get off of that. Secondary lesson six is that the male and female distinctions we saw last week that barred females from serving in the army is a distinction that we see in other areas of life as well. Take a look at verse 14. Your wives, your little ones, and your livestock shall remain in the land which Moses gave you on this side of the Jordan, but you shall pass before your brethren armed, all your mighty men of valor, and help them. So the males went into battle, the women stayed behind in the cities and they, uh, at, at the farms on those three tribes. There was a division of labor between men and women. Both were important, both were needed, and there was zero gender confusion. It's my contention that we need to reestablish a beautiful, biblical, counter-cultural expression of what true identity, uh, gender identity looks like within God's kingdom. And here's the reason why. We're evangelizing. And when gender-confused people get converted and they come into the church, they're going to need to see what true gender identity within God's kingdom looks like and how beautiful it is and how essential it is for people to embrace uh, their gender. I think it's a legitimate application of this verse. Now, obviously, this is talking about the, uh, you know, two and a half tribes that were on the See, it's east or west. It was on the east side of the Jordan River because they'd already conquered the land. They had cities, whereas the tribes on the west side of the Jordan, they still had to conquer the land before they could settle in it. So what happened with the women and the children in the western tribes is they were stayed in their tents way behind the battle lines. And then as the battle lines moved, their tents moved and the God's tabernacle moved. And they played a supporting role. Uh, for example, there was a supporting role of, of prayer. And I believe in some battles, they were, the, the women and the children were praying their hearts out, uh, you know, for their, their husbands and dads. And they did cooking of meals and repairing damaged clothing and other supportive uh, roles. Now, here's the point. They were shielded to some degree from the front lines of the battlefield for two reasons. First, they were needed at home. But second, God has not made women to be able to hold up under the constant assault of battle without in some way losing some of their beautiful femininity. I've already mentioned this this past week. The Senate uh, has introduced this um, horrible language that would make it a felony for um, 18-year-old girls and and up to not sign up. And we, we need to... We, we, we need to uh, oppose that. But women don't flourish in that environment. They lose their femininity. Now, this morning, I'm not going to get into all of the fine details and the exceptions to the rule and the nuances of male and female role relationships. I did that in our series on, on uh, women of faith. 
Uh, here is the only thing I'm going to say. Women should glory in their womanhood and not find value by doing what men can do. And men should glory in their manhood and not be desiring to do what women can do. Okay, gender confusion is epidemic in America, including in the evangelical church. And I think it's critical that males and females glory in their gender distinctions and not fight against them. I, I love the title for Elizabeth Elliot's book, uh, Let Me Be a Woman. Probably needs to be another book, Let Me Be a Man. You know, we need to glory in what God made us to be. And so where did gender confusion even start? Many scholars have demonstrated, I think rather conclusively, that it started with feminism. If you look at the feminist hermeneutics, and there's books out there that document the feminist hermeneutics from the feminists themselves, and you look at gay hermeneutics, and there's a bunch of books that have been put, put out, they're identical. The hermeneutics are identical, okay, for how they, uh, hermeneutics is basically the rules for interpreting the Bible. And we follow, and Christ and the apostles followed, the normal grammatical, historical uh, methods of interpretation, but there's been all kinds of weird hermeneutics that have been invented by Marxists and feminists, and, and they call it queer hermeneutics, all of that kind of stuff. And what those are designed to do is to explain away the clear meaning of the biblical text. Anyway, Bible-believing scholars were warning decades ago that feminist hermeneutics would of necessity open the door to homosexual, transgender, androgynous hermeneutics, and all of the other strange hermeneutics we've been seeing in the last uh, two decades. And here's the weird thing. These fake Christians in the LGBTQ mo movement, and they are fake Christians, they tolerate any of these other hermeneutics the only hermeneutics they will not tolerate, and they fight against tooth and nail, is the historic hermeneutics that takes the Bible at face value. That shows the demonic nature of this. They're willing to put up with all of these contradictory views on, on, on the Bible, but the one that they will not tolerate is the biblical model, and they don't play fair at all. Uh, it's demonic fight, and so they don't pay, play fair. What they do is they cherry-pick some of these examples of abuses, sinful abuses that have occurred in male leadership in conservative churches. They'll cherry-pick some of those, put them together in a book, and say, see, that's why we need to throw out God's order in the Bible completely. And what happens? Yes, there are abuses. You can see abuses everywhere. But what happens is they have now introduced their own abuses such as sexual mutilation. And yes, I can name you evangelicals right now who are cutting off the body parts of their kids because their kid has gender confusion, and on some whim, a boy wants to be a girl or vice versa, and they're cutting off body parts. We are going to be, as we bring people into the church, going to be having to deal with bitterness and anger of people uh, against their parents who have allowed them to do this. And so we're going to have to have the tools to help them come to uh, you know, peace with that and to grow in Christ as a result of that. But that is true ab abuse. Here's the point. <laughs> I'm going down rabbit trails, but it's like dominoes, the, these, these hermeneutical issues. If one doctrine falls, you're going to eventually see other doctrines begin to fall, and it's a demonic fight against God's order. And so the only way to fight against demonic gender confusion of today is to renounce the demonic and joyfully, without apology, submit to God's role relationships for male and female. Now, I want to end with one more lesson. 
And that is that God wants us to enjoy his good gifts. He is not stingy. He is not a killjoy. God loves to fill his people with joy and gladness. And by the way, male leaders who are trying to imitate God's fatherhood, uh, you know, if they're worth their salt, they're going to want to bring joy and fulfillment into each member of their families as well, right? Anyway, uh, take a look at verse 15. Until the Lord has given your brethren rest as he gave you, and they also have taken possession of the land which the Lord your God is giving them, then you shall return to the land of your possession and enjoy it, which Moses, the Lord's servant, gave you on this side of the Jordan toward the sunrise. Notice those words, and enjoy it. Don't read hurriedly over those words. And enjoy it. Okay? Now, they could not enjoy the land if they bypassed the context of responsibility, of trusting and obeying uh, the Lord. Well, in the same way, Ecclesiastes says that enjoyment pursued apart from God's plan is going to leave you empty. It will. But it also says that when God is a part of all that we do, then our food and our wives and, and everything that we're a part of, we can enjoy to God's glory, and he delights in our enjoying of those things. God enables us to do so. Ecclesiastes 3.13 says, Every man should eat and drink and enjoy the good of all his labor. It is the gift of God. Enjoying life is a gift of God. That's why Solomon could not enjoy life despite the fact he had everything. He couldn't enjoy it. Why? It's a gift of God. You can only have it when you're in white relationship with God. These Jews in Joshua 1 would not have been able to enjoy the land if they had been like the previous generation. You can't fully enjoy, find enjoyment in a flower, in poetry, in food, in other things of life when you're walking out of fellowship with God. And yet everything can be enjoyed. The sweeping of a floor can be a total joy when you're doing it as a love service for God because you know he's, his smile of approval is on what you are doing. Ecclesiastes 2, 24 through 25 says this, there is nothing better for a man than that he should eat and drink and that his soul should enjoy good in his labor. This also I saw was from the hand of God. Now here's, here's the thing. This was said by a man who previously had found nothing but vexation over his labor because he failed to live life under God. In Ecclesiastes, there's two, there's a two keys. Under the sun, if the sun is the highest reality in your worldview, you're a humanist. You're leaving God out. But if heaven is the highest part of your worldview, you're living under God's throne, under his lordship, under his blessing. And so that's the key to interpreting Ecclesiastes. And he could not find enjoyment because he was leaving God out of the equation. Ecclesiastes 9 says, Live joyfully with the wife whom you love all the days of your fleeting life. You see, God is not against pleasure. He wants us to enjoy life in all of its facets all of our days. Ecclesiastes 11 says, Truly the light is sweet, and it's pleasant to the eyes to behold the sun. So even a simple thing like enjoying sunlight can be enjoyed when you are in fellowship with God. 
And that is one lesson that Hebrews 3 through 5 makes of the whole book of Joshua. It says that in order to enjoy life, we must have a Christ-centered view of life. Now, 1 Corinthians 10 does the same thing, but it does it in reverse. It says if you're like the previous generation and you're leaving God out of the equation, you're not Christ-centered, you're going to be a grumbler who can't enjoy life no matter how generous God is to you. It's just going to rob you of that joy. And so when we seek happiness as an end in itself, we ironically end up losing it. It flips away from us. However, when we seek God as the end in himself, he gives us the byproduct of happiness. And that's what this passage is saying. As you serve God and you're willing to lay your life down for him, the byproduct is enormous joy, enormous happiness. And so the answer to the first shorter catechism question is this. Man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. May each one of us learn how to enjoy life more and more fully because we have learned how to enjoy God and obey him. Amen. Father, thank you for your word. And I pray that the principles that we have seen this morning would grip our hearts and help us to enjoy you in absolutely everything that we do. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.